denial. And then what we'll, we'll end this morning, we, we won't, there's no way, we'll get all the way to the end of this chapter today, but we'll, um, we'll end in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and looking at Jesus' prayer just before he's arrested. And so we'll, we'll spend some time there. So it looks like a lot, and it is, but we'll uh, make good use of the time as we go through the passage. I'm going to read, I want to begin by reading the first nine verses of, of Mark 14, and then I'll pray for us. But this will get us into it, and, and you'll, you'll feel some of the mood. Honestly, Mark 14 feels like holy ground to me. I want to be careful. I want us to, to be able to enter into these scenes with one another um, and, and not get lost in too many of the details. I'd, I'd like for us to, to find ourselves there as, as much as we possibly can this morning, that we would, ex- we would see it and experience it with our senses. This is how Mark records it, beginning Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said that not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you'll always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that we would be able to hear and see touch and feel in, in the very metaphorical sense, but, that, but Father, all the sights and the sounds and the, and the mood of, of, of Mark 14 would, would overwhelm us this morning. That, Father, your word would not return void, that you would kindle in us a remembrance of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, remembrance of what it means that we are saved. Father, remembrance of the good news of the gospel that came at a great cost to you. And so, Father, help us this morning. Help, help us to hear your word rightly 
And so we pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, the, the first thing, the first couple of verses, you, you see there's a plot um, uh, at foot here. You've got uh, the, the, scribe, the chief priests and the scribes, and um, it, it's the time of Passover. It's the time of the of unleavened bread, Passover. It, it it's a, you know, reminds you of, of, of uh, death that leads to life. You, you go back to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and the plagues, and, and then they come through the Red Sea. And so, redemption, we will see as Mark will finish out his gospel, redemption is going to come through the cross at the cost of the death of the firstborn. You also have the crowds here, and the, and the chief priests and the scribes, they're worried about the crowds because Jesus is still wildly popular at this point. And, and he's, um, um, you know, the officials, they want to take away his power. They, they want to exert control over him. That's what the word um, here, you know, they're seeking, that, that seeking word, uh, it, it it, it, it means to exert control. They're looking for him. They want to arrest him. They want to seize him. They want to repress him. And the whole scene is one of deception and, and secrecy. I mean, they're threatened because Jesus was popular with the crowds. and They're threatened also because Jesus was exposing them. And that's why they go into stealth mode. You know, they're going to hide in the shadows of the text, if you will. And their strategy, you know, they, they want to they seize him in the dark and they want to kill him, and they're not going to do it during the feast. And all of that, we're saying, okay, this is premeditated. This is malice. This is forethought. And what is startling here is what they're doing under their own free will and in their own Hatred, all this premeditation we're going to see is all enveloped in the sovereign will of God. This is all accounted for in his divine plan. And it reminds you of the end of Genesis when Joseph, he confronts his brothers in Genesis 45 and he reveals who he is to him. And he says, now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You sorry excuse for a bunch of brothers. He says, look, look, here's, how, here's, here's what I've come to realize. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me. So, so it wasn't you that sent me here. God sent me here. And he tells them in, in chapter 50, he says, as for you, you, you meant evil against me. This is true. There's no denying it. You're culpable for that. You meant evil against me. But God, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be saved. Well, Mark's going to just suddenly change the scene. He's sort of given us an overview. This is what it's like in, the, in Jerusalem right now. There's this conspiracy afoot. But uh, Jesus isn't in Jerusalem at the moment. He's in Bethany, which is a couple of miles away on the other side of, of, of the Mount of Olives, and he's staying uh, you know, with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. We, we understand that from Mark and from the other Gospels. And he's, he's invited to a dinner. 
And this dinner is with a man, Simon the leper. And presumably, he's a man who has been healed by Jesus. Maybe he's the man who was healed in in chapter 1, the the leper that was healed. Well, we don't exactly know. There's another scene that's similar to this in Luke chapter 7, but it's probably not the same scene. Jesus is here. He's still associating with the outcasts. Um, and And then there's this woman that comes on the scene. Now, interestingly enough, Mark doesn't tell us who the woman is. We know from from John's gospel, for instance, that it's, that it's Mary. But, but for Mark, it, it's, that detail is not important. He's not interested in that detail. The, the scene is not about who she is. It, the, the focus is on the, on the act, on the, on the adoration, on the anointing, the, the, the object of worship. That's what the scene's about. It's not about the subject of worship, which is always a good reminder in worship that it's never about the subject of worship. It's always about the object of, of worship. And he describes this, this, uh, you know, this ointment, this pure nard. I mean, he, he's using words. He's piling words on top of each other. He wants us to know this is extravagant. It is worth a great Deal. It's a year's worth of wages. Uh, the offering, it wasn't just a partial offering. It was a total offering because she, she broke the flask. I mean, nothing is spared. And there's just great humility all over this scene. She's sharply criticized in verses 4 and 5. The other thing Mark doesn't tell us is that it's Judas that's leading the Uh, The choir of criticism here. But then in verse 6, Jesus comes to her defense. And, and And he comes to her defense by saying, hey, this is a beautiful thing. Leave her alone. What she's doing is beautiful. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says this, what she has She's done what she could. And then Jesus, Jesus applies this more than even, even the, the, the woman here, even more than Mary knew what she was doing. He says, what she's done, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. She, she doesn't even know how beautiful what she's done really is because the first step in preparing a body for burial is you, you rinsed it, you washed it, you anointed it with Perfumed oil. One writer, Philip Keller, he kind of, he captures this for us, for our imagination. He says this, he says, The delicious fragrance ran down over his shining hair and thick beard. It enfolded his body with its delightful aroma. Even his tunic and flowing undergarment were were drenched with its enduring pungency. Whatever he moved during the next 48 hours, the perfume would go with him into the Passover and into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the high priest's home, into Herod's hall, into Pilate's praetorium, into the crude hand of those who would cast lots for his clothing at the foot of the cross. That fragrance was with him 
through all those events. You know, it's true. It's a powerful thing. I remember I used to hug my grandmother. I'd smell her for two days. <laughs> and I loved it. And even today, if I catch that scent of, of what she wore, it's a powerful sense that we have. It t- takes me right back to her. He says she'll be remembered. Jesus is memorializing this. It's worth remembering because Jesus is worthy. It's a beautiful scene of worship. Well, from there, Mark gives us this this information in verses 10 and 11, and, and we find ourselves not entirely surprised about it because every time he's described Judas, you know, it's Judas... Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. You know, I mean, he, he's, he speaks about Judas like a, you know, like a UT grad would speak about an A&M graduate. You know, Judas from College Station or whatever, or vice versa. And so we're not surprised, but we... We do find ourselves alarmed at, at, the, at what the betrayal in, you know, includes. He says it this way, you know, then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, who was one of the 12. He'd been there all along. He went to the chief priests in order for the purpose to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and and promised to give him money. 30 pieces of silver we find later. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's treacherous. He's become a spy in the midst, a, a traitor to the cause But very clearly, Mark's saying, look, Judas is not a victim. He's not a pawn. He's a free moral agent who freely chooses evil and seeks to betray Jesus. And yet, side by side here, you have this freely chosen evil of a human actor, a human character. And yet the overarching providence of God, divine grace uses even human evil for its saving purposes. Well, he leaves it there, and and we're going to go to the Passover now. And in in verse 12, this is the the whole occasion that he began with in verse 1. It's it's the time of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And so in verse 12, he says, And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... His disciples said to him, where, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so, so how this worked is you'd, you'd take the lamb, you'd go to the temple. Um, I think it was somewhere around 3 in the afternoon, as much as I can discern. And they would have sort of the ceremony, and, and you, would, you would sacrifice your lamb there. And you would um, take out some of the insides. You'd lay that so, so it could go to the altar and be burned up. You would, you would sprinkle the blood, and then you would take the rest of the lamb home, and you would prepare it for the meal. 
And his disciples say, where, where are we supposed to go to prepare the meal? And then in verse 13, look at just the specific omniscient knowledge that Jesus drops about these mundane things that are, that are to come. In verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And that would be a surprising thing because typically in that culture in that day, the women, they carried the jars of water. But you'll see a man. And when you see him, follow him. And then wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus essentially said, and he'll know exactly what you're talking about. And he'll show you a large room, upper room, furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. And so the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. It's a planned event, specific knowledge, knowledge that Jesus has tells them what they'll see and how the conversation will go. And then in verse 17, Mark's going back and forth. Here are the events of Jesus, and then here are the betrayals, the denials coming. Look look at verse 17. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, and and, um, you look at that and you think, man, did did my translation leave out? Should it be reclining at the table? I mean, that's how we would talk. But reclining at table, that's how they didn't sit at the table. They, 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 they lounged around the table. It was a very intimate setting. They reclined at table and eating, and Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It's it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want to linger here for just a second. Jesus' death on the cross is going to change everything. A couple of things to notice quickly. It's going to change how we view God. I mean, some of you, I think, have a view of God about him that God's angry. He's He's out to get you. And because of that, the most dangerous place that you can imagine is the presence of God. And I want to tell you, I think this scene can change that for you. See, Jesus, he's reclining at the table with 12 of his disciples, I mean, they're sharing a meal. It is an intimate meal. It's a relaxed meal. It's a meal among friends. And yet he knows full well he will be betrayed. 
And I want you to see that. There's a love of Jesus here that just shines through. Jesus' death on the cross is going to make the way for God to invite us into his fellowship, to, to dine with him. This will not only does it help us change our view about who God is, it also changes our view about ourselves. What Jesus does is he speaks a word of, of conviction that, that touches every heart in that room around that, uh, you know, that intimate setting. We can touch all our hearts too. And the response of the disciples, don't miss this, it wasn't to look to somebody else. I mean, the response of the disciples wasn't, oh, well, he must be talking about Judas. We knew it all along. The truth is they didn't know it all along. Uh, look at what it says. In verse 19, they, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it, is it me? Am I going to be the one that does that? Being in the, in the presence of Jesus, I mean, it caused them to look into themselves, reminded them how desperate they were in need of being saved. And it highlights deep down, our hearts are broken and sinful and incapable of anything. And the scene highlights the need for the cross. It sort of puts this exclamation point on the, on the need to be saved from sin and saved to a relationship with God. Now look at verse 20. This is the preordained plan of God for the redemption of the world. 20 and 21, verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The cross, Jesus isn't a victim of circumstance, and the cross is divinely directed, and yet at the same time, woe to him. Woe to him who's, on, who's, who's a part of that. Judas is going to be culpable, fully responsible. His sin, his treachery, it does not in any way thwart the will of God. It is folded into the will of God. And at the same time, Judas is going to stand guilty. And so I want to say a couple of things about Judas here. One, Judas was in the group, but he was never one of them. He hung around, he enjoyed the fellowship, had a place of honor as the treasurer, but he was never with Jesus. He was the treasurer, and yet Jesus wasn't his treasure, if you will. For, for Judas, this was a, a, an, um, a, an enterprise to, to be a part of, a group to be associated with. This is some teaching to follow, but at the end of the day, Judas belonged to himself. He didn't belong to Jesus. He was a man who had come to get something from Jesus, Jesus, whether it was status or wealth or significance or place to belong, but that was it. He didn't want Jesus. He didn't belong to Jesus. I say that to say it is possible. It's so possible to attend church and be in a life group or go to a Bible study, have a, even have an accountability group, go through all the motions and not belong to Jesus. 
Judas is the warning for us all that we, you can go all the way through the motions and yet still belong to yourself. You, you can belong to a church and, and yet not belong to Jesus, not know Jesus for who he is. And so it's a good place for me to ask you as, as a pastor, what, what rises in your heart when you hear this? The, the response of 19, is it sorrowful and, and searching? Or would it be like Judas? Just simply worried you'd be found out. I'll tell you, that, so the first step's being found out. First step is sorrow over sin. It, 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 broken conviction that says, you know, I need Jesus to save me. Overwhelmed by the fact Jesus died for you. And it, it, it's believing that, hoping in that. You know, listen, before Jesus will ever be struck by the whip of a Roman guard, he is going to be struck by the betrayal of one of his closest friends. That's why when Isaiah says, that, Isaiah 53, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the one to come... He'd be a man of sorrows. Betrayal is a sorrow like no other. The passion of Jesus, this is what we call it, the passion, begins with betrayal. Jesus' death on the cross because of sin. Jesus knew the sorrow of sin personally and intimately but it's not only Judas Judas he's the imposter among them but listen one's going to betray him one will deny him they all will desert him and so what what comes next is even more mind boggling when you think about it what comes next is the, the dinner, the, the meal doesn't, doesn't end. I mean, there's going to be intimacy and singing and comfort and grace. And, and Jesus is going to do all of this with the disciples in these next verses. He, he's doing it for betrayers and deniers and abandoners. I mean, you got to let that sink in for a minute. Fully aware. That these disciples that he loves they're going to leave him. Look at verse 22 and as they were eating he, he, took, he took the bread and after blessing it he, he broke it and gave it to them and said this is my body. And at this point, Jesus is coming off the script. They were it's a script, a Passover meal script, and, and all the, you know, every, every Jewish person knows it. And you, and you go through the, the cups of wine and the, and the different portions of the meal. And, and, but here, what you have is, is the Passover meal, and Jesus is going to come off the script, and he's, and he's going to take the bread, and he blesses it. And he says, look, this, let, let me... Let me change this for you. you. You need to know what's happening. This Passover meal, this is something, it's a remembrance of the old covenant and, and the promises of God. I'm here to tell you the promise has come. I, I'm bringing in, I'm ushering in right this moment a new covenant. And just like this 
bread is broken, so will my body be. And then in, in 23, and he took the cup and, he, and he'd given thanks. And, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And then he said, this is my blood of the covenant or my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And truly I say to you, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think there's a couple of things I don't want you to miss. One, the language is very much like the language of the anointing in Bethany. When she breaks the jar, pours the, the fragrance out over him. It takes us back to that. This is my body. It's broken. This is, this is the cup. It's, it's poured out for many. And so there's this extravagance here, the extravagance of Jesus and the act of redemption that's coming. So you're not just barely washed by the blood of Jesus. You're not just barely washed from your sins. You're, you're covered. And like the powerful scent of the perfume would have covered over all the other sins. No matter how foul you are, no matter how good you are, the aroma of redemption covers you if you're a believer. If you're a believer, you can't get away from it. You can't, you can't get it off of you. You can't dilute the extravagant love of, 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 of God and, and the sacrifice and the redemption of Christ's Death, you, you can't get that off of you once you've been washed in it. And this covenant, this new covenant that he's talking about, it's the covenant that Jeremiah talks about and Ezekiel talks about in Jeremiah 31. It, it's this covenant. It's this inner transformation. It, it, it'll cleanse you from all sin, Jeremiah says. I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin will be remembered no more. He says, I'm going, to put, I'm going to put God's word and his will in you. I will put the, uh, my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. What God says about this new covenant in Jeremiah. And then it's this relationship in Jeremiah 31, 33. I, I, will, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup. <clears throat> All this. We're on, the, we're on the threshold of all this. And so I'm going to pause here, he says. I'm not finishing it yet. I'm I'm going to finish this on the cross and then and we'll drink the next cup together when we're all together. And we'll see that in Revelation chapter 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus longs for it. He can't wait. And then it says, look at verse 26. I don't know if you saw this. 26 probably actually may be broken up in your Bible. It looks like it's part of the next section. It, it really is part of this. It says, and, and when they... They sung a hymn, and then they sing together to do all this, and then they sing a hymn together, and then they, and then they go out from that upper room to the Mount of Olives. 
And if you're Jesus, you might think hardly a time for singing, right? But he does. He, they would have sung most likely, probably absolutely surely, they would have sung from the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. Very likely they would have sung from the end of Psalm 118. Just listen to this for a second. When, when I read this psalm, with the end of this Passover meal in mind, <clears throat> I'll, I'll be honest with you. There are a couple of familiar phrases that all of a sudden sound different to me. Psalm 118, it begins this way, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Right out of the bat. You know Psalm 118 is a, is a song about the love of God. And then you get to the end, verse 19. Maybe they were singing this. Jesus is, is leading the chorus. You know, you got one or two of those disciples. They grew up in Sunday school. They know all the words. You know, they went to the Baptist Sunday school. And they, some of them are just like, yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I never could learn those words. You know, like, just like, your, like your school song, you know. Everybody's singing it and you're just mumbling words. Maybe they were doing that. Jesus wouldn't have missed any of them. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate to the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Maybe Jesus finishes this psalm strong. You're my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And they sung a hymn. I went to the Mount of Olives. And they get there in verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away. 
Praise the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. Not your love. Your love will fall away. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You get the famous Great Commission scene in Galilee at the end of Matthew's gospel. Then Peter Peter said to him, even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if you must, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all, they all said the same thing. Peter, just so we're clear, oh, Peter, it won't be just a momentary lapse. It won't be just a mistake. It won't be, you're going to deny me three times. Of your own free will. Whoever you think you are now, Peter, you're not. And that's why I'm going to die for you. I've got just a couple minutes, but I don't want you to miss the scene in Gethsemane. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. It means olive press. It's where you find all the olive trees. It's there on the Mount of Olives. And he, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and, and watch or or." Or keep awake. Which to their defense, it would have been they would have had at least four cups of wine at the dinner. And so going a little further, he fell on the ground. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba Father. All things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. In Luke chapter 22, he describes it this way. He was in anguish. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Well, what's the hour that Jesus prays to be relieved from? Well, what's the cup that he, he asks God to, to take away? You, you might think it, it's, the, it's the, uh, the, the, the physical uh, trauma that, that he is about to experience, that, that he knows that's coming with, with what it would mean to be beaten by a Roman soldier or to be stripped naked and uh, to, to, to be nailed to, to a cross. You, you might think it's that, and, and certainly it, that wouldn't have been far from his mind, but, but I believe it, that when he refers to this hour, this cup, he, he means something very specific. Job 21.20 says this, let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Jeremiah 25, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Habakkuk 2.16, you'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink. Let your nakedness be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. Revelation 14, 10, they too will drink the wine of God's fury poured at full strength into the cup of his wrath. Psalm 58, in the hand of the Lord, is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Here he he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. What's the cup he's talking about? He, he's about to drink. What Jesus is saying is, I'm, I know that what's about, I'm about to be handed the cup, the cup of your infinite wrath. You know what that, that's the cup we deserve. I deserve. The cup of God's wrath that's full of foaming wine. And he's about to take it in, in his body, the, all the wickedness of the world. He, he, he doesn't just experience our sins. The Bible says he became our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he that knew no sin became sin. He, he bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he's about to experience the wrath of God. being poured out on the sins of the world. The infinite wrath of God for every murder and rape and broken heart and war and death and disease and injury and lie and genocide and suicide bombing and rebellion and the list goes on and on and on. And this is the cup that Jesus drank. And what's great is, what's amazing it's amazing about the grace that we sing amazing grace about. It's like Jesus switched the cups. And so when we, every, the first Sunday of every month, and on Good Friday, Friday night, we'll do this. We'll celebrate communion. It, he, he drinks the cup of God's wrath, this, this 
punishment unimaginable. And he, what he does is he, he he's taking that cup right out of our hands. And I, I'm going to drink that cup. Here's your cup. The cup of the new covenant. It's not the cup of wrath. It's the cup of grace. We take the, the bread and we take the juice and we say it in the remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're remembering. I drink what was yours. You drink what's mine. And so Jesus prays if there's any other way. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. And then it begins. Judas found the moment, the moment in the garden. And he went and got the guards, and they come, and they'll arrest Jesus. And it has begun. Let me ask you this morning. Do you remember the gospel, the good news? This thing, the church, we've gathered to proclaim this morning the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. The good news that you've heard in such a way that you come away and go, oh, no doubt the depth of the love of God. I pray that for you this morning. I don't want you to just be around us and not be with us. I don't want you to I want you to just name the name of Jesus. I want you to belong to Jesus. I don't want you to just celebrate Easter. I want you to remember it. I want us to worship Jesus together. So if you can, come Friday night. We'll, we'll finish this up. We'll be all ready for the resurrection on Sunday morning. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, these passages are overwhelming to meditate upon. Pray that you would supernaturally slow us down this week. I know for some sitting here that would just seems impossible. Just they're looking at mountains to climb and stress to wade through, and yet, Father, you, those things are nothing for you. So I pray that each of us this week, what a great week to do it, would hand those things over to you. Father, you'd slow us down. You'd calm our minds. You'd calm our hearts. You'd draw us to your son, Jesus. We would, Father, we'd be worshipers all week long this week. Prepare our hearts to worship you. 
Finally, you can do that. And so we ask this morning in the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is seated at your right hand, and by the power of your Spirit.